All right, welcome back to Hellspan. This is part two of Win by Dr. James DeNiclo Antonio. In this quick episode, I discuss all about resistance training and muscle growth. Most of the exercise-induced hypertrophy results from increased units of striated muscle tissue, we call these sarcomeres, and through the increased number of muscle cells, we call these myofibrils. This phenomenon of increased sarcomeres and myofibrils is mediated mainly through the muscle satellite cells that become active when under sufficient mechanical stimulus, this is like resistance training, as well as the activation of the AKT mTOR pathway, which I'm going to discuss right now. It is well known that mTOR is the main growth switch in the body. mTOR, of course, is the mechanistic or mammalian target of rapamycin. It is the protein kinase that is the fuel sensor that monitors the energy status of your cells. When mTOR becomes activated, it phosphorylates downstream signals like SK61, which will then activate different ribosomal protein translation elongation factors and different cyclin kinases that cause a cell to grow and proliferate. Now, mTOR is getting signals from the entire environment. As I said, it's an energy signal. And there are really two main types of mTOR. There's mTOR complex 1 and mTOR complex 2. Both of these help stimulate cell growth, proliferation, DNA repair, protein synthesis, new blood vessel formation, muscle building, helps with our immune system, and everything related to anabolism or growth. Now, mTOR complex 1 is the one we really want to focus on. This is the nutrient sensor that is controlling the protein synthesis. It is regulated by things like insulin, growth factors, amino acids, mechanical stimuli, oxidative stress, oxygen levels, the presence of certain energy molecules like ATP, phosphatidic acid, and also glucose. mTOR complex 2 regulates the actin cytoskeleton, which is the kind of network of long chains of proteins in the cytoplasm of our cells that help carry um, you know, different organelles in our cells, help keep it afloat. That's the main co- uh, role of mTOR complex 2. And here are the main mTOR activating nutrients and factors, as I mentioned already. So one of them was the amino acids. Amino acids promote mTOR activity, specifically the branched-chain amino acids, and even more specifically, leucine. Leucine specifically activates mTOR complex 1 the most. Some evidence also hints that leucine's byproducts, like HMB, may have a similar anabolic effect through the mTOR signaling pathway. So leucine, HMB, and creatine monohydrate also prevent myostatin's inhibitory effect on muscle growth. We know, again, mechanical stimuli or resistance training is another mTOR stimulator, specifically the eccentric contractions of the, of the weight motion. So when you are lowering the weight, increases levels of mTOR complex one the most. So emphasizing the slower negative portions of an exercise releases more growth hormone compared to faster repetitions. This was shown in a study. And the simple fact that you can load more weight on the muscle when you are eccentrically contracting is another reason why it probably stimulates growth hormone and mTOR a little bit more. There are some other stimulators, as I mentioned, phosphatidic acid. This enhances mTOR signaling. Um, Ursolic acid is another thing, stimulates mTOR after resistance training, which has been found in mice. And creatine, as I mentioned, also may potentially promote mTOR by increasing IGF-1 activity after exercise. Now, there is this mTOR paradox that 
is constantly in debate. This regulation of mTOR has been implicated in various cancers and other diseases, but the question is, if mTOR activation is so bad, then why is exercise one of the biggest things associated with health and longevity? The answer really lies in the tissue specificity of the mTOR expression. Now, this is something Gabriel Lyon talks about all the time, is the tissue specificity of mTOR. You basically want to have mTOR activated where it is beneficial to us. These are places like our muscle, our brain, and our nerve cells. And suppress it in areas that are harmful to us, like our fat tissue, our liver, and in those other cells with cancer. Exercise activates mTOR in the brain and promotes skeletal muscle mTOR, while simultaneously inhibiting mTOR complex 1 in the liver and fat cells. So it has a dual role. It is increasing mTOR where we want it, in our muscle, in our brain, and it is decreasing in areas we don't want it, which is in our liver and our fat cells. And this is exactly what we want. What's more, the mTOR, has a, mTOR complex 1 also has other benefits that may actually increase life expectancy, such as building muscle, burning fat, and regulating the immune response. mTOR also contributes to neuroplasticity, learning and memory development. This is why it's so beneficial for our brain. So again, there's this paradox of mTOR, but we have to remember the difference between uh, chronic mTOR stimulation versus acute, and also tissue specificity. Now other factors contributing to muscle hypertrophy. In addition to mTOR, here are some other contributing factors to muscle hypertrophy. The first is cell swelling. So cell swelling or hydration stimulates the anabolic process by increasing muscle protein synthesis and decreasing its breakdown. This cell swelling is thought to be caused by the increased pressure against the membrane, which gets perceived as a threat, leading to more cellular repair and reinforcement. Now cell swelling is maximized by heavy glycolytic exercises, which accumulates lactate. These are things like you know, fast sprints or high-intensity interval training, as well as through blood flow restriction. Now, insulin-like growth factor, again, facilitates the anabolic reaction in response to the mechanical loading and leads to downstream activation of mTOR. So similar to mTOR, IGF is really debated and has this kind of paradox to it as well. High levels of IGF and insulin are linked with greater occurrences of cancer and aging, However, the IGF-1 associated with cancer is really not completely understood, and there's a lot of debate about high levels of IGF versus low levels of IGF. Low levels of IGF-1 may actually be more detrimental as you age, and you'll be more predisposed to muscle loss and bone fractures. So maybe as you get older, it's actually better to have higher levels of IGF-1. Thanks to its anabolic effects, IGF-1 has beneficial effects on atherosclerosis, wound healing, and muscle dystrophy, as well as burn injuries, and other things like osteoporosis, as I mentioned. So IGF-1 can actually regulate glutathione peroxidase expression in vascular endothelial cells, and this has a protective effect on heart disease and vascular aging. In terms of the wound healing and burn injuries, we know IGF-1 really stimulates collagen synthesis, and prevents aging of the skin. And uh, in terms of our cognition, IGF-1 helps to prevent cognitive decline by promoting new brain cells. And this has really been shown in rats, like more brain cell growth in rats, and also improved in learning and memory, as I mentioned. 
And in older men, it actually it can actually help with the mental processing, likely through some sort of BDNF-related mechanism. And if you want more information on IGF, I go into great detail about uh, IGF and, and the whole uh, growth hormone IGF pathway in my other books that I discussed. So The Longevity Diet by Dr. Walter Longo and Age Later by Dr. Nir Barzile. I go into a lot more detail about IGF and its relation to aging, longevity, cancer, diabetes, and all that, if you want to check those podcasts out. But for now, I want to move on to the androgen hormones. These are things like testosterone and estrogen. Testosterone, we all know, has a very anabolic effect on muscle tissue by increasing protein synthesis, as well as our IGF-1 levels. And it also helps reduce protein breakdown. It promotes promotes the myoblast differentiation, satellite cell number growth, and increases myonuclear number by binding to androgen receptors on muscle cells. So testosterone has also been known to signal uh, mTOR, and it's another mechanism of how we grow our muscles, you know, when we take uh, testosterone or when we we increase testosterone. And we know resistance training also upregulates androgen receptors in humans as well, which attracts testosterone in the target tissues. So the the main question is, how do we raise testosterone? This question uh, is probably answered by a million people. But really, the main ways to raise testosterone, the biggest thing is the resistance training. So resistance training is proven to increase testosterone both in the short term and long term. And the best exercises for boosting testosterone are full body compound lifts. These are things like the barbell squat, the deadlift, the bench press, the overhead press, barbell rows, pull-ups. All these compound movements where you're working out multiple body parts in a single movement. And the reason has to do something with how full body compound exercises really target multiple muscle groups and joints. They require a lot more stabilization and this results in a larger amount of muscle fibers that are being fired at once. So this is really why compound movements are best to raise your testosterone levels. And when you go to the gym, you should really be focusing on those when you start out your workout. And to move a little bit forward, um, he talks all about testosterone and gets into normal ranges of free versus uh, total testosterone in in men and women. Uh, But what I really wanted to discuss are more ways to boost your testosterone. Now, most of your daily testosterone is released during sleep. And we know people with sleep apnea and fragmentations of their sleep have been shown to reduce testosterone levels. Sleeping disorders are linked to lower testosterone. And low testosterone can cause sleeping problems as well. So it's a dual role. Sleeping less makes you produce less testosterone. Having less testosterone causes sleeping problems. And there was a study done in 2011 out of JAMA, which found that sleeping only five hours a night over the course of eight days lowered daytime testosterone by 10 to 15% in these healthy volunteers. So we know Just five hours of night over this eight-day course can really lower testosterone levels. Now, there's a lot of theory about why testosterone has plummeted these past, you know, couple decades. And for me personally, I think this is multifactorial. There's a lot of reasons why testosterone is plummeting. One of the biggest reasons, in my opinion, is the uh, obesity epidemic. We know higher rates of obesity lower our testosterone. But there's this also prevailing theory that 
household chemicals, plastics, all these environmental toxins can actually lower testosterone by acting as these quote-unquote endocrine disruptors. And some of the most common household chemicals, these are things like BPA, phthalates, and other estrogenic compounds. They, they mimic estrogen in the body and can often cause hormone imbalances. These are things like, you know, increased phthalate exposure. They are found in plastics and, and personal care products. These have been really shown to be associated with lower testosterone levels. And higher levels of phthalate reduced testosterone by 11 to 24% in adults between the ages of 40 and 60, and by 24 to 34% in children. So, you know, be careful of what you put inside your body and also on top of your body and all these household, you know, cleaning products as well. Uh, but I'm going to move forward. And again, you could spend hours and hours talking about testosterone, but he has this cool segment um, a couple of pages later talking about the different types of muscle hypertrophy. So when when you think about muscle hypertrophy, you have to keep things very simple and talk about the different types of muscle hypertrophy. So there's really two main ones. The first is the sarcoplasm hypertrophy. So sarcoplasm is just the cytoplasm of a muscle cell. Sarcoplasmic hypertrophy promotes the volume of sarcoplasmic fluid in muscle cells, and it isn't accompanied by really significant strength gains, but the amount of potential blood and glycogen being stored in muscle increases, thus making you know muscle look more inflated and bigger. This is the whole idea of like hydration and you know why you're a low carb, you kind of seem really flat is because you're not holding that much water and cell swelling you know in, in the cell. And this is the whole like idea of a pump. And there's also the myofibril hypertrophy. This proliferates the number of myofibrils. So those are the kind of the two main types of hypertrophy. Again, the sarcoplasmic or the cellular part and the myofibril hypertrophy as well, which is the number of myofibrils. Now, moving on to the very last segment is all about training for muscle growth and strength. I already mentioned, you know, compound movements is what you really want to stick to. But I didn't really mention the whole idea of uh, sort of you know, progressive overload, which I'll get to. So he talks about the story about an ancient Greek um, farm boy named Milo. So Milo lifted a calf every single day. And as the calf grew larger, Milo also got stronger. This is one of the origin myths of strength training and muscle hypertrophy, as it perfectly illustrates how adapt adaption to resistance training really works. If the calf wouldn't stay, would have stayed the same weight in weight, you know, the same size, then Milo wouldn't have gotten any stronger or bigger. There needs to be some sort of continuous stress, you know, for the body to build an increasingly greater amount of muscle and strength. And lifting the same amount of weight won't be it, it won't work in the long run because you it becomes too easy. And again, this is the whole idea of progressive overload and how progressive overload really leads to muscle growth. So progressive overload describes gradually increasing the amount of stress being placed on the muscle and the nervous system to build muscle and strength. It can manifest itself in many forms, lifting heavier weights, doing more reps, shorter rest periods between reps, more total volume, higher frequency. All of these can accumulate to having, uh, can each individually have some sort of progressive overload effect. 
Now, it is hypothesized that there are really three primary factors that initiate the hypertrophic response to exercise. It is mechanical tension, muscle damage, and also metabolic stress. So these are the kind of three prevailing factors that really initiate the hypertrophic response when we exercise. The mechanical tension is things like progressive overload, which I just talked about. Adding more weight, adding more sets, adding more reps, you know, as you become more experienced in your training. Also having mind-muscle connection is part of the whole mechanical tension. So when you're lifting, are you actively thinking about working that body part? Or is your mind kind of wandering when you're lifting? And the last part of mechanical tension is the near-max force production. Now, muscle damage, this is things like eccentric training. When you are eccentrically part part of the motion, you are damaging more muscle. And again, you're you're also kind of having a, you know, putting more load on the muscle as well, leading to more damage. Muscle damage can also be things like increased range of motion and also novelty. And the last part of this uh, triad of muscle hypertrophy is the metabolic stress. How can you metabolically stress your muscles? These are things like higher reps, really feeling the pump, having a burn effect, and also short rest periods between, between sets and between reps. Again, this is the triad of muscle hypertrophy. More mechanical tension, more metabolic stress, and more muscle damage. Now, really just to move forward, uh, I talked all about the different types of like frequency, intensity, volume, and, 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 and all that. So the million dollar question is, what is the best training routine to do? If you want to build muscle, what is the best training routine to do? Now, there is a well-known researcher, his name is Brad Schofeld. He is one of the most published researchers around muscle growth. And in a paper in 2010, he poses the training guidelines for muscle hypertrophy, which can really be summarized in this one paragraph. So a hypertrophy-oriented program should employ a repetition range of 6 to 12 reps per set with rest intervals of 60 to 90 seconds between sets. And these exercises that you choose really should be varied in a multi-planar, multi-angled fashion to ensure maximal stimulation of all muscle fibers. So you want to be working in all ranges of motion and planes of motion as well. He's also stating that multiple sets should be employed in the context of a split routine, split training routine to heighten the anabolic milieu. So at least some of the sets should be carried out to the point of concentric muscular failure, perhaps alternating microcycles of sets to failure with those not performed to failure to minimize potentially for overtraining. In other words, there's, there should be time periods where you are lifting to failure and other times where you are really not lifting to failure. And training should be periodized so that hypertrophy phase culminates in a brief period of higher volume, overreaching, followed by a taper to allow for optimal supercomposition of muscle tissue. In other words, there's a lot of words, but basically there, are, there should be times where you are really, really focusing on adding more weight and quote-unquote maxing out and really pushing your body to cause that mechanical stimulus. And then other times where you should be doing more higher reps and kind of more of this maintenance uh, phase of your training. This is the whole idea of periodization. If you're a beginning lifter, I highly recommend just kind of going with the 
push-pull leg split. So if you're listening to this and you're a brand new lifter, something I wish I would have known is to just start with the push-pull leg split. Push-pull legs is the kind of bro, bro split. It's where you do your pushing movements on one day, pulling motions on the other day, and then your leg day on the third day. So the pushing movements, these are things like chest, shoulders, and triceps. And then you do your pulling movements. This is like back bicep. And then you work out your legs. So by doing push-pull legs, you can theoretically work out every muscle twice a week, which is what you want. This is an effective strategy for both muscle and strength. And personally, I've been lifting for 12 plus years now and I've done everything under the sun, but I always seem to go back to the push-pull legs. This is just the, the classic split. It works. It's well-backed by science. And if you again, if you're beginning, I highly recommend you know checking this out. But really, you want to do what works for you. You should be lifting weights and also doing cardio as well. And when it comes to the lifting weight portion, keep experimenting. Find what works for you. And if you see kind of gains, quote-unquote gains, you know, continue this for a while. But again, novelty is part of that triad, remember? So you should always be implementing, you know, new exercises, but always have the fundamental compound lifts, you know, going back to the whole testosterone and and using, you know, multiple joints to uh, to lift. So again, this is the problem of resistance training and diet. It's all very nuanced. So a lot of times at the end, at the end of the day, you really have to find what works for you. So I'm going to end the podcast here. I hope you learned something about muscle growth, mTOR, testosterone, resistance training. And I hope you tune in next week for another episode of Win by Dr. James DeNicolo Antonio.